0: Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public. This is the Keep Talking Podcast. To support it, please take a second and subscribe to the show. It helps to make this content possible. The following is a conversation with Roy Baumeister. Roy is a social psychologist a professor at Florida State University, and the author of many books, including Willpower, Rediscovering the Greatest Human Strength. During our conversation, Roy speaks at length on a variety of fascinating topics. How and why male homosexuality may have survived through evolution, differences in male and female sexuality, hunter-gatherer parenting styles, marriage and sex, how women have shaped men, the tragedy of the male sex drive, whether free will exists, and how we might approach our nature with a degree of self-awareness and wisdom. Roy is a brilliant writer, a prolific polymath, and someone who is admired and respected by many who have been on this show. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Roy Baumeister. Roy Baumeister, uh, it's such a joy and an honor to be able to do this. I really appreciate you taking time to come on the show, man. It's wonderful to meet you. Welcome.
1: No, thank you. Glad to be here. It's uh, great. It'll be fun.
0: I hope so. I uh, was scanning through my notes a little bit ago today, going through one of, uh, trying to decide what of the many different fascinating topics you have covered that I wanted to start the conversation with and begin with. And I thought maybe I would start with a throwaway comment I heard you made on an interview once related to a subject I've long been fascinated by, which is the existence of gay people and how, through evolution, gay people, gay men have persisted in the human population. And I know from what you mentioned, the data appears to indicate that there is some overlap between highly successful men, quote unquote, with women and gay men, and that that potentially is a working theory as to how gay men essentially exist in human nature and in nature in general. What do we know about that? What's the best explanation we have as far as your understanding is concerned right now about how, big, you know, the concept debate. of gay is.
1: Yeah. First of all, I'm a generalist. I'm trying to put together the big picture. So I'm not an expert in every area and certainly not in in this, But but when you consider both nature and culture are against being gay, Nature selects based on reproduction, and gay sex doesn't produce any babies. And cultures are often uh, against it, too, and punish and stigmatize gay people. So why does it survive? Nature and culture are our two main explanations for everything. Uh, my colleague at uh, it was at Queensland, uh, Brendan Siege, had a really intriguing answer with a very strong database. Um, I'd seen it suggested once or twice as speculative, and I thought this is a brilliant idea. But, you know, in, in social science, ideas are cheap, and uh, data is precious, and and, and Zietz, uh, he got it, he said, you know, okay, uh, gay people, their sex doesn't reproduce, but it turns out the siblings of gay people, especially gay men, they have above-average number of sex partners, they are more attractive to others. So you can think of it this way, that you know, uh, reproduction depends on the man and the woman kind of hitting it off. And a total man's man, hmm. well, he can usually find women to go along with him because he's really successful, but they don't; he doesn't relate that well to them. Some feminine traits help a man relate to a woman. And it could suggest that, well, a lot of feminine traits make him, uh, make him inclined to be gay. Um, so it's a matter of hitting the middle. Hmm. So the, the gay man may not have any children, uh, even though he might have a lot of really good friendships and relationships with women, but his brothers and sisters who perhaps aren't quite as far along as he is, they hit it off really well, and they are sexually interested. The men are interested in women, and vice versa. And so they reproduce, perhaps above at an average rate, and that offsets the the gay men not not producing. It, it has to. I mean, I don't know that this theory is true, but there are not very many plausible theories, and it has to be something like that that hits the middle. Again, nature and culture are against it. Why isn't it completely disappeared from the gene pool? There must be something good that promotes reproduction. And if, uh, it, you know, if it a certain amount is good and a little too much makes you not interested in doing it, that's, that's at least plausible. Mm. And, and Leach has pretty good data, uh, to, to back that up.
0: Fascinating there's another line that I heard you say, uh, and this is related to men and women and male sex drive, and I know there's a concept you have spoken about related to the tragedy of the male sex drive, and you've spoken a decent amount about how much women have basically shaped men and it your answer was or your comment to uh, this general topic was about if you ask there were studies done asking men. In an ideal world without concern for pregnancy or infection or stigma, how many sex partners would you like to have in your life? And asking the same question to women. And the data that you presented, and maybe I'll just give it to you, what do we know about the studies that have asked men and women that question and what the differences are between men and women when they respond to that open-ended query?
1: Well, I was writing the book, there's a new study that came out, and it was asking first year college students, so those don't necessarily generalize and they probably haven't had that much sex, but the women on average wanted to have about two and a half uh sex partners, and the men wanted to have sixty four. So so there's a lot of disappointment ahead for those young men trying to connect with women who are not nearly as interested in that. I think the evolutionary people make a good point that the men who were more interested in more different partners, that probably produced more offspring and were defended more from from those men than the the men who only wanted to have one or even less than one. Um, So that's there. It doesn't make as big a difference for the women. Uh, A woman can only really have one baby a year, no matter how many men she has sex with, whereas if a man has sex with 50 different women, he can have a whole bunch of babies each year. Hmm. Um, so, uh, oh, I'm not sure if we are going with this. The, uh,
0: maybe it'd be helpful to hone in on the idea related to how, maybe two ideas, the tragedy of the male sex drive and how women... Ironically, and I think that's the word I've heard you say in the past in in interviews, that it's ironic that women have really formed men. And one of the ways in which they've shaped men is to give them this sky high sex drive. What do we know about that?
1: Yes, well, one of the profound comments by David Buss is, uh, of a colleague I know who's really influenced my thinking a lot over the years. He said, oh, men and women complain about each other all the time, but they really shouldn't because whatever the traits are of modern women, they're the results of the mating choices of of men and vice versa. So men and women have really molded each other by who they mated with and who they didn't. And take it a step further, if you look at the numbers, women have bred men much more than men bred women. It's just partly because women are choosier about who they'll have sex with. Uh you know, men a certain age will have sex pretty much anyone who's willing. And men and women are much pickier, so it's given women much more power to mold the male psyche than the the men that chose uh, molded the to women, although both are real. Um and then this is something I've been thinking about a lot lately. Um my the first thing I'm trying to come up with a big picture understanding of the human mind and why it is the way it is, and uh, the, the the short starting point is that nature made us for culture. Mm. We we're we we're shaped by natural selection, but culture is our our strategy. It's how we survive and reproduce, and it's working really well. Where uh, all the other mammal populations are declining, and ours is increasing. Um, But part of that requires the bigger brain, which you can't birth a big brain. So humans are born premature by ape standards. Most of the monkeys, they can start taking care of themselves within the first year and feeding themselves. A a human child is dependent for a great many years, uh, which ultimately means, and, and the brain has to grow, which means not just food, but protein. The mother can't do it. So getting the father to take on the provider role, that's one of the keys to human evolution, to the essence of human. And, you know, the women arranged to do it, to get, you know, select the men who would, who would do it. And, uh, it's crucial to making culture and everything else possible. Um, but, uh, what is it that attracts men to women that will make men Commit to becoming a provider for a long period of time because none of the other apes take fatherhood seriously, mm. and none of them care. Okay, the idea to tell a gorilla, "Oh, you should feed your children," I think it's ridiculous. And you should feed the mother of your children every day. You know, this just some gorilla he had sex with five years ago. It's a ridiculous idea to him. But but the human males do that. So what is it and of course the primary thing in nature that the males attracted to the females for sex so I, I have to think in this evolutionary process the men who kind of stayed with the gorilla mentality and said what well, I'm supposed to double my workload every day and forage for three or four instead of just myself forget that they took themselves out of the gene pool mm. uh, whereas the males who had a strong enough sex drive or yes, I I love this woman, I want to be with her, I want to have sex with her on a regular basis, and I'll I'll do whatever it takes. Um, They were the ones that the the women could use to become good fathers to their their babies. Uh, So a high sex drive was probably a factor that women selected men for. It's a bit ironic today with the Women protesting men's uh, aggressiveness and the Me Too and stuff. But it's really just it's another way of using men's sex drive to control them. Um, the more basic one was to to get the man to commit for a you know, multi-year period of time. Well, I've read about, say, the hunter-gatherers, and what they say is human civilization's been around for 150,000 years and 140,000, most of that was hunter-gatherers. Uh, living in cities and farming is a fairly recent uh, development. The hunter-gatherers, they didn't really mate for life, but they've mated for you know, 10 years or something, which is long enough for the, the children to be provided for and start to become more self-sustaining. You're eight or nine years old, human children can, can really be somewhat participants, and they can take care of the younger children and do some Gathering and 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 so forth. So, um, for the man to to stay with her for that great time again, that's really unusual mm. in the great apes. But it's crucial to make culture possible, and culture is our biological strategy. It's how our species solves the universal problems of survival and reproduction. We we form a society organized by culture, share information, cooperate, work together uh language and economic marketplaces and all these things. And, and it's a very successful strategy. It, it works well. Um but again it takes takes a bigger brain, which takes a longer dependency, which means that the woman has to get the man uh to provide for her and her children over a long period of time. Hmm.
0: I know a book that I've heard you say had I think some influence on you and the way that you think about yeah you know, Culture and relationships between men and women as I understand it is a book called Too Many Women, which I had never heard before you mentioned it. If that's correct, what do you remember about that book and what what still resonates about it?
1: Uh, it was a brilliant book. It was uh, early 1980s. I was just a young young scholar that's getting started in my career. Um, and I came across it. It was two senior people, Marsha Gutenberg and Paul Secort, I think it was a married couple. Um and they looked at sex ratios. So the idea of too many women, you know, sometimes there are too many men. Or the ideal, I suppose, is to have equal number, so everybody can have a partner. But what happens when there's a surplus or a shortage of one or the other? Um, they looked at different societies that had different sex ratios because sometimes, you know, I mean, some hunter gatherers just. Exposed basically kill the the baby girls if there are too many because they produce more or sometimes there's a big war and all the males are killed or there's a shortage or for whatever reason there could be imbalances. Essentially, when there's a surplus of males, sexual norms are very prudish. Hmm. Uh, that uh, to get sex, the man has to make a long-term serious commitment. You know, sign his life away, and so on. When there's a surplus of women, uh, it's the other way around. Uh, Sex is free and easy, and there's more premarital and extramarital sex and so on. Now, the the goals of both men and women are are opposite to those. It's not a democracy. It's not a majority rule thing. It's more like an economic market, which is the minority rules on this, buyers and sellers if you think of sex as something where the women are the sellers and the men are the desires, I mean, this point's been made by sex researchers going back to the 70s that in humans and in all other species or most other species, sex is seen as something that the males want from the females. Um, and uh, And so you think of the males as the demand and the females are the supply. So you have, like, after a major war and a third of the men were killed or whatever, and then there's a surplus of females. And what happens? Uh, yeah, it's, it's the minority. I guess mm-hmm. the way the men don't like it, but there's premarital sex and extramarital sex, and you can have multiple partners. And the uh, uh, one they settle down with better please them, or you can easily find someone else. And so on. And when there's a shortage of women, and some of the extremes were in in the America's Wild West because of selective migration. It's some of the highest ratios in world history, you a 100 men for every woman. Uh, and so, you know, there are a few prostitutes around to make money off it. But if you wanted a, a partner, you wanted to marry someone. You had to sign your life away and do whatever she wanted, and if you lost her you would never find another. Hmm. Uh, the same in uh, China with the one child policy gives a huge deficit of of women because the, they had to they could tell during pregnancy what the, the gender of the baby was and they have selective abortion. Uh it's presented in the west as some kind of anti-female bias but when I visited China I realized the lot where the in, in China, the parents can make their old parents, when you get old, they don't already have good social security or anything. It may be better now, but hmm. the parents can sue their son in court and make him support them. The obligation of a son to support his old parents is not an abor- uh, obligation on the daughter. So, well, <laughs> of course you want a son rather than a daughter, uh, because, uh, you know, when you get old, or if you can't work anymore, you really need somebody to uh, to provide for you. So whatever you think of, about those laws, but again, it was another case where there's a huge surplus of men, and the sex uh, laws again became very prudent. I believe the demand was far greater than the supply. Hmm.
0: There's a a quote I'd love to read from you that is related to this. It's related to men and women, and it's related to culture. And this is it. It's about you know history. Maybe I'll read a couple that are somewhat related and then the primary quote that came to mind that I think is worth reading and this is this is a hilarious one that I heard you give on a podcast interview once. quote "Men will do whatever is re- required by women in order to obtain sex, and not a whole lot more <laughs> um,
1: too that, that's one of my general conclusions. I mean that I, I'm not sure that's I'd Like it or want to promote that or whatever, but that seems to fit the data. Again, the examples we've been talking about to, to get sexist, a man has to sign his life away and make a permanent promise and commitment, and so on. He will do it. Mm. And if all he has to do is take it to McDonald's for a, a quick meal, then, then he'll do that. And again, not much more.
0: This is the one the primary one that came to mind that I want to read, and this is sort of related to men and women in over the generations and over the the centuries and This is also from you a man wanting to run a farm in sixteen fifty or 1700, 1700 really needed a wife, and it didn't matter yeah. if he loved her. you didn't really have to get along. The family was an economic unit, but by a cup by by a couple centuries later, the man is no longer a farmer. And he doesn't have the same need for female input economically. Yeah, this is related, I think, to the Industrial Revolution. And you have spoken about the Victorian era and how that affected cultural norms and sexual norms about women specifically. What what, what comes to mind when you hear that quote come back at you related to, you know, how things evolve and adapt and change based on what's happening in history?
1: Well, uh... Inspired from Burgess and Locke, some sociologists who wrote it in the the middle of the 20th century, that the family had really changed from an economic unit to a a more emotional unit. Yeah. If you go back to to 1850, a farm family, they're all working together and the kids had chores and there was men's work and women's work. You, You couldn't have a farm with only a man or only a woman. You really needed both, and again, love was was a luxury or, or superfluous. But you needed the man to plow the fields and the woman to make the clothes and can the fruits for winter or whatever. Um, and so by by 1950, that just wasn't true anymore. The family was not an economic unit, and so the purpose of the family had changed to be a nexus of emotional. Revel- uh, relationships uh, you evaluate your marriage not as is, is the farm working are we going to survive the winter which traditionally was a pretty high priority but you know in the 1950s uh, it wasn't the case anymore It you evaluate it based on am uh, my emotional needs satisfying being satisfied Care of each other and the children. Are we happy, and so on? And the economic output of the family was, as a unit, was was near zero. They just usually in the fifties the father worked, the mother usually didn't. You know, they, obviously the mothers work too, but they don't work together. In most cases, it's not a it's not a cooperation. Um, so it's really a profound change in the meaning of the family. And world historical perspective even
0: yeah i know that we were mentioning this before we started recording the the interview that you know your former uh, co-writer and presumably uh, your friend is married to <laughs> helen fisher you know i've i've talked about a lot of the the themes that she speaks about and about you know i had a conversation with richard reeves about of boys and men and I talked. To, I talked to Tanya Reynolds a few weeks ago, all kind of circling similar themes about human nature and modernity and where we're heading with all of this. And maybe to to ask you about Helen specifically and some of this, some of her research, I think is applicable to you know, at least some of your work. What have you learned from her? You know what uh, resonates still for you from you know what she has written, what she's researched. I'm not sure how familiar you are with. Her her book and her her books and publications. But um, if anything comes to mind, I'd be curious to know what sticks out about her specifically.
1: Oh well, this is a hard question for me. She's a brilliant scholar who's had a magnificent career, and uh, um, her work is mostly published in anthropology, and it's relevant to some of my things, but it. wasn't in the kind of stuff I read. I've learned a lot from talking with her, hearing her perspectives on things. Um, But I'd be hard put to have a list of her five best ideas or anything like that. Uh, Mm -hmm. I mean, I know she wrote a book. She said she spent five, six years writing this book to explain men and women. And uh, it just outraged the feminist establishment and they destroyed it in a week. But she said it's it's like two different feet, yeah? The left foot and the right foot. They're different, but you need them both working together. And I think it's a very apt metaphor The human species really has survived and prospered by virtue of, of cooperating. There's this uh, sort of feminist, pretext that men are oppressing women and their enemies. Uh, I think that doesn't really correspond to what's actually been the reality is closer to what Colin Fisher said of, of men and women working together to to to, to cooperate and uh, um complement with an e complement uh, e, each other so that uh, society moves on and children are raised and the, the, the culture survives. I mean, most recently one of the lines uh, sort of resonated in me from from Helen is uh, that, that human men were bred to be suckers. That gallibility uh, that uh, is one of those traits. Again, men, women bred men more selectively than men bred women and if women bred men so that men would be good providers for the women and for their children, which is essential to the uh, the, the success of the species, especially as cultural beings where you have the long dependency for the brain to grow after after the after being born. Um, and then, Making the man amenable to the woman's influence is uh, be a highly desirable trait. Probably best for the species, certainly best for the uh, the women. But uh, in terms of bred to be suckers, uh, a lot of things fall into place if you (laughs) look at modern men Uh, through that lens.
0: Yeah, this is a a quote that's somewhat related to it, and I think I first was exposed to this idea in Sapiens where uh, Harari talks about something you mentioned earlier in the conversation, which is the human babies being born prematurely because of the size of their brains and how that shaped the relationship between men and women in general. And this is, this is the quote from you in order for humans to evolve the way we did and become these cultural beings there had to be a whole bunch of changes, including bonding the male and female for a longer time. Um, you spoke; yeah. I think you alluded to this earlier in the conversation. But what else do we know? That it seems to me like this is a very important fact and uh, aspect of our history when human babies were born prematurely and how it shaped. And maybe you've already answered this question in the sense that women selected men who were open to the kind of loyalty and um, you know, uh, resource-giving that would help them as mothers. Um, talk about that moment, if you can, and what how much c- comes from that fact about human history. You talked about hunter-gatherers bonding for years until children in general were more or less self-sufficient. I'd love to just give you an opportunity to speak to that general concept
1: again. All right. Well, I want to repeat what I said before, but uh, again, the the, uh, culture needs a big brain. There's a lot more information to deal with than rules and laws and norms and customs. There's a lot more for the brain to do. The brain is a very expensive organ. Um, it consumes a lot more calories. That's why we don't see squirrels and mice with big Einstein brains. It's not that just evolution makes you smarter over time. Hmm. Um, it's a squirrel with an Einstein brain would starve to death because it consumes so much calories it wouldn't get any more food, uh, by being that much smarter. So where does the advantage come from being smarter? Well, when you share information and that's human culture communication and cooperation are the the big human advances in evolution and, and when we share information with each other suddenly there's a lot more for the, the brain to do so there's an advantage to having a big brain but it has to grow after you know, outside the womb uh, mm-hmm. because the uh, you know squeezing a giant brain through the uh, woman's birth canal will uh, you know break it um and uh so we here the long dependency and getting the male to be committed. And my sense is there are a whole bunch of evolutionary changes to bond the male and the female human together that are just not there in the other grade eights. Um I mean starting with face to face sex. Uh, they mostly do rear-entry, which, you know, gets the job done. But it doesn't create that, you know, you're gazing into each other's eyes and and kissing. I, I don't even know if they do kissing at all, but, you know, it's a big thing with human mating. And female orgasms, the uh, uh nature-boosted those and those bond the male and the female together. I know there was a... Sort of this feminist complaint that the men wanted the women to have orgasms, like they were pushing singer and so on. But really, you have to think biologically: having one person care about whether the other one is happy—that's a, that's a big positive step forward. And uh, for evolution to make—I you know, don't think the gorillas care if when they, the male gorillas care if they have sex with a female, if she enjoys it or not. Uh, but the, the humans do, and that produces emotion on both sides. Indeed, the whole thing of passionate romantic love, uh, where you extend over time and love being in this person's presence and want to do it, that's got to be a big innovation, or at least a huge increase in bonding the male and the female together. Uh, fathers loving their children also don't see much of that in the other grade eights, but obviously it's... it's uh, very strong in humans. My daughter, it was against my principles to love my daughter more than my wife. Cause you know, your child just goes up by random biological event. Whereas you choose your wife as your life partner. I'm about, I'm totally clear. I love that little girl more than I've ever loved anybody else. Uh, so <laughs> principles notwithstanding, Uh That's a, a huge action. And that, you know, women have loved their children for, Way back in evolution, but fathers, uh, to love the children, that's another thing that ties people together. And there are probably a few more, and the gullibility, which makes the man more liable to the woman's influence, and, you know, that's kind of helped the relationship work. So, I, my point is, I think there'll be a whole suite of biological adaptations for the human to. human male and female stuck together for a uh, a period of time uh, there's a a crazier extension of this idea Um, I think it's an interesting speculation I don't at all I argue that it's it's definitely true but uh, I've been reading the addiction literature trying to learn about addiction and it, it looks like Human males get addicted to drugs and alcohol and stuff more than females, and that doesn't seem to be true in other animals. So Why would that change suddenly? Why would the evolution produce in the human male this propensity to get addicted to drugs? That's not sensible or adaptive. But if it means getting emotionally attached to a new source of pleasure, that could help Tie the man to the woman and make him bind himself to her. Um, my sense too is it's really just the the pleasure and bliss kind of drugs that do it. That, uh, if you look like the opioids, both men and women get addicted to those. Everybody wants to be rid of pain. (laughs) Everybody would go, would be happy to go from minus five to zero, but to go to zero plus five, that's much more of a male thing seeking that out. And it, it could be that it was another adaptive thing that med, made the man attached to the woman. In my studies with uh, McNulty and Meltzer, and so on, I looked at the course of sexual desire over young marriages over the first five years of marriage. And uh, five years after marriage, the man's sexual desire is pretty much the same as when he walked down the aisle. There's a very little change there, whereas the woman has dropped substantially in most cases. It drops more if she has a child, but even the childless couples, with the wife loses interest in sex. But here again, it would be a kind of thing where the, an addictive attachment for the man would keep him tied to her, even if the sex isn't as plentiful or as good as it was before, as long as it's called partial reinforcement. Now and then it is. Occasionally it works. And I think, yeah, 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 that's it. And that's maybe enough to keep the addiction going. So. I don't know if this is this is true. This is a speculation. The thing is, it, it's hard to come up with any other theory for why human males would be more prone to addiction than human females. There's no obvious uh, theory there. So, so this is one. But again, it would be something that would be very valuable for nature to arrange, again, to attach the male to the female so he keeps providing for her and her children Hmm. long enough so that they become able to fend for themselves so much and then the evolutionary test is grandchildren do your, your offspring survive long enough so that they produce offspring hmm. that's, that's, that's the done deal.
0: Yeah, fascinating and I know I've heard you talk about this book before The Sex Diaries in which I think some of the yes data that you were just conveying I think stems from, at least in part, your familiarity with with that work, which I think you've already echoed, which relates to male sexual interests yeah. and their
1: their long-term partner yeah. saying, but yeah. Uh, she contacted me, she published it in Australia and wanted to help finding out an American publisher and I am sorry it wasn't any help, but we kind of became friends and I read the book but that's what made me ask uh, uh, to my colleagues who are experts in the study of relationships, McNulty and Luther, is this true? I mean, the, the journalist found it in her haphazard sample of people she followed, but is it true that, and they they said it's it's not in the literature, but they said we actually have uh, two different studies tracking married couples over the first five years of marriage. It's, it's, it's somewhere in our data. They didn't know what the answer was. Yeah, but they said we will go and look and see what the answer is. And so, complicated is a huge amounts of data and stuff. It took a while, but they they went and analyzed and said, oh yes, it is. It is true. The uh, the men's desire pretty much steady over the early years of marriage, whereas the wife's drops substantially. They also showed uh, couples' uh, satisfaction with their marriage drops. Substantially in step with the wife's loss of desire, the, the man's sexual desire is irrelevant to their how happy the couples are. But the, as the woman loses desire, they become less less happy. And I, uh, I, I thought we should get this message out. Uh, I Tried to get McNulty to write a big op-ed or something like that. He's busy with other stuff. But uh, probably what happens is the man and the woman. You know, they court and these days they're having sex before marriage and it's really good and they're happy. And so on. i think OK, this is the way it's going to be. And then a couple of years in the marriage, she's like, yeah, she doesn't really want to do it so much anymore, but he really does. And so in a sense, they they grow apart in terms of their sexual desires. You know, but what often happens is they blame each other or blame themselves. Oh, look, there's a problem in our marriage. You know, we're not in tune sexually the way we were. You know, back when we were recording, or about to get married, and uh, is uh, there something wrong? And, and they should understand: no, there's, there's not something wrong with you. It's not. A, it, this is a standard problem. This is this is normal. Uh, it's a problem you should solve as a couple. It's mm-hmm. not a problem that something is wrong with you as a couple. and um, Figure out what what you're going to do about it. But this is this is the typical pattern. But without that knowledge. You know, of course, you know, when the think, well, somehow, you're not charming me as much anymore, and you're not you're not satisfying me as much anymore. And uh, again, they blame themselves or blame each other, but either way, it's going to undermine their their satisfaction with the marriage. Yeah. Do you
0: view this mostly as like a bell curve, where this is the average outcome, and there right. are yeah. exceptions to this where? Long-term couples don't experience. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. Everything is distributed. uh, Everything, almost everything, is distributed with a a bell curve with a normal distribution. Um, So, uh, yes. Um, I mean, on average, it's very clear men have higher desire for sex than women. But there are some women with really high high sexual desire, mostly ones at, at a certain age uh, there are one or two studies of, of them and they have trouble making friends with other women because they don't see do things the same way and they don't uh, understand uh, um, each other um, so uh, yeah one or two it's um, different for them they have they can certainly, if they want sex as much as a man, it's usually easy for the woman to find the partners, whereas men have trouble finding the women who want to do as much as they do. Um, but, uh, I, again, it's a complicated uh, thing. But anyway, in answer to your question, yes, of course, there's a yep. wide range of distribution and people are different. We're just talking about broad averages.
0: And I know this was a question I I wanted to ask you because I'm certain you've given some pretty deep thought to this about, given what you know about men and women and all the information that we've been talking about today, do you think it's unwise to expect for most people a lifelong monogamous relationship to be feasible? you know, that's drilled into us, at least, you know, you and I are both Americans. I grew up in Erie, Pennsylvania. I think you're, if I remember correctly, you grew up in Cleveland. So we grew up in the same vicinity. Um, What, what do you make of that question? What do you think is the practical, you know, realistic outlook on what is arguably the most important arena of human affairs in an individual life?
1: Yeah, I haven't totally figured this out yet. Um, The the data are not perfect on this kind of question. Um, In general, it looks like people who are married for a long time are better off than people who are single or who marry and divorce uh, and so on. Marriage has a bunch of good effects on men and uh, oh. on women too. Um, if we talk monogamy as in never having sex with anyone else, well, that's going to take some renunciation and probably puts more of a strain on the man than on the woman. The data on how much that happens. I haven't looked at them for a while, and it's not clear people tell the truth either to the sociologists uh, asking them questions. But um, if you look in any given year, over 90% of married people only have sex with their spouses. Uh, If you look accumulated over a great many years, well, a lot of people will have an occasional playing or something with someone else. Um, it it looks like m- this is more important to men and more desirable to men than to women, although, it's, it's, again, the data are not totally persuasive or clear, mm. and, and women might just be less willing to admit it. Um, even the issues of what counts as sex—you know, when they count how many, such that, how many sex partners have you had? The men have always had a lot more than the women, which is <laughs> statistically in, implausible. Um, and there are multiple things contributing it, but one of them is what counts as sex. Hmm. Um, so a lot of the borderline cases. Than men if I had to count it in the woman, isn't. So the difference may be smaller than, than some of the, the survey numbers. Um, um, you're going to go back to evolution and biology. The, the, the other apes, our biological relatives, are not monogamous. So this is an innovation in humankind and it's going to be incomplete. Uh, and if people could do whatever they want, uh, I thought they'd be completely monogamous, but, uh, but they do like to form the strong attachment and be mostly monogamous. Uh, that, uh, that does seem to resonate with human motivation, and it works pretty well uh, for society. Obviously, culture can and build on nature and uh, say okay you get one spouse and, and that's it and um, make it illegal to uh, have sex with anyone else ever not allowed to get a divorce and uh, uh, once you have sex with someone that, that's it for your life um, so we are, we are not by nature, a fully monogamous species, but we incline in, in that direction. And uh, Monogamy, with a few exceptions, are what the sociologists call serial monogamy, that you uh, you have an intense relationship, an exclusive relationship with one person for a few years, and then you break up, and then you have another intense relationship with someone else, and during that time, you don't with anyone else uh, but over the course of a lifetime you have-
0: hmm. yeah i know uh, we're getting towards the end of the conversation and i found a lot of your uh you know research on a topic that has long interested me too that i knew i wanted to address with you and and bring up in the end of the conversation, which is a totally different subject, the subject of willpower. And I thought maybe in the transition over to this subject, I would just read a couple of quotes from you as well related to willpower, which I I thought resonated with me and were interesting and might be a, a, a proper way to segue into this subject. And here are a few of them. This is from you. What stress really does is deplete willpower which diminishes your ability to control emotions. This is another one. The best way to reduce stress in your life is to stop screwing up. (laughs) And then the final two final ones. One is, this is another line from you lock yourself into a virtuous path. Maybe that relates to some of what we were just speaking about related to how it's, it's really complicated with human nature and monogamy, but the, the virtuous path might be the uh, generally the more preferable. And then this is how I think you start the book in one of the first few pages, your book Willpower. However you define success, a happy family, good friends, a satisfying career, robust health, financial security, the freedom to pursue your passions, it tends to be accompanied by a couple of qualities. And my understanding is one of those qualities is your ability to assert your will on the world and it's become fashionable i think through a couple of very well known you know public intellectuals two that come to mind are robert sapolsky and sam harris who have asserted with their brilliance and their eloquence and their writing and speaking that you know free will does not exist that it is um it's an illusion and On certain days when I hear those arguments, I am completely persuaded by what they have to say. And it's been this ongoing riddle in my own life, just selfishly trying to come to terms with what what is real related to the will and free will. I certainly was raised with that idea. And it became a central part of my identity when I was young, the importance of you know your willpower and will in general. So maybe I'll just start this this segment of the conversation by asking you: In your research, in your understanding of the brain and human nature, does free will exist?
1: Yeah, I'm just finishing a uh, a book with Oxford University Press called "A Scientific Theory of Free Will." Hmm.
0: Uh,
1: so, yes, yeah, so, I mean one point I made early is I. Talk to a lot of people who scientists who don't believe in free will and others who do. And I finally, I mostly agree with both of them. They're not talking <laughs> about. The, the, it's a, a terminology argument, and uh, the ones who are against it, they think it's some kind of the soul is causing behavior independent of biological processes. I don't believe in that either, but the, uh, the ones in favor are. Behavioral flexibility, being able to act differently in the same situation, that I think is, is real and highly adaptive and evolved to a, a high level in our, our species. So uh, um, in a lot of the arguments about free will are just disputes over terminology. Is it, the thing that gets me is that the people who believe in free will and the people who don't. Both psychological scientists, you'd think they must have radically different ideas about how behavior is caused. They don't. They they mostly go through the same stuff, and they also they make, they agree that the human mechanism in the mind that causes behavior is just radically different from anything else in nature. I mean, we are moral agents, so we can abstract ideas into the causation of behavior, we can project into the future, simulate multiple pathways, uh, economic marketplaces. There's nothing like this in the world. So the human behavior control system is this is marvelous new evolutionary product. And the two sides just agree as, disagree as to whether that deserves to be called free will. Okay, well, uh, uh, I'm not interested in the terminological argument, the scientific problem is, how does this remarkable new capacity for controlling behavior work? I'd say we might as well keep the term. It's it's not the best term. If we were just discovering this today, we might come up with a different term. But uh, given the centuries of discussion, we might as well preserve it. And for me, the free part is is more plausible The, the will part is the problem. There's no psychology of the will. The will is clearly a metaphor, like against our will or something. But, you know, you grab any introductory psychology textbook, there's no chapter on the will. It's not a, it's not a thing. But freedom, clearly some actions are freer than others. Everybody has that experience. <laughs> and so, uh, to me, that's the scientific challenge, what moves people up or down along that continuum. And, and when the situation permits a greater freedom of choice, what are the psychological processes that that that, again, that that's, uh, that's the reality of free will. Whether it deserves to be called free will or leave that for other people to debate.
0: Yeah, I know uh, many years ago, one of my favorite philosophers, Dan Dennett, wrote a book called Freedom Evolves, which uh, I'm, I'm guessing you're familiar with some of, of his arguments. And I mean, to me, yeah. what...
1: Right at the same time, I was writing the cultural animal book and kind of making the point that yes, we evolved the capacity for freedom. He's a wonderful book. He's a brilliant guy. He didn't really explain the evolutionary process that much. He didn't go into that, so it was a bit frustrating me. And philosophers understand problems in a different way, and uh, he was addressing the the ones the way they look at it, but. Me coming in as a psychologist wanting to see the evolution, I, I didn't get that from that, but uh, um, but a very sympathetic to the conclusion. And, and yes, this new capacity for action control is something that uh, humans evolved. That's that's uh, again whole order of magnitude or a whole category different from what all the other uh, all the other apes do to control their behavior.
0: Yeah. I mean in in my read on people what what people really care about is the ability to have agency and some influence over the trajectory of their life and the ability to me that's when I started running into the determinism and no free will arguments I think why they were so unsettling is yeah you know, I took them to mean that that does not exist that there is no uh you know, freedom for lack of a better word for people to be able to mold their direction in a way that makes sense to them. So, outside of the semantics of what the terminology is, you know, in your estimation, do you think that exists, that that's real for the human mind and people in general?
1: Is that what, in my,
0: what is it is real? A, a sense of. Uh, a real capacity for agency and a degree of self-determination for
1: your work. The, the, the complication here is not does agency exist, but what's the relation to human free will? Because, uh, you know, mice will do that. Cat chases the mouse and it will have to choose whether to run left or right. Yeah. But it knows it better run somewhere. <laughs> uh, so. Uh agency goes way back in evolution. The human form is advanced and it incorporates new and grander things into it, but it, it builds on the simpler one.
0: Hmm. And in your, I think you said you're in the process of writing this this book, what are you discovering? What, what's new in your mind? What has been un, uncovered in your thinking that you know, you found fascinating or uh persuasive that that comes to mind if anything related to the subject
1: well there's quite a bit i two hours up i could spend a a separate hour if you want back again when the book comes out that would be fun but uh um there are some things uh, clear as i said the way that the human brain moves tells the muscles to move the bones that's how behavior occurs in every animal. but the process in the human brain is like years ahead, qualitatively different from what the others have. Um, late in the book, I'm um, pondering how much of a motivation is there to do that is, is it just an ability or do we have like an instinctive desire? I mean the desire for control? what? Fully really convincing, but pretty much. I mean, animals have learned helplessness. They're deprived of control. They, they suffer and show pathological reactions. Um, humans like to do it. It seems like we like to have options more than we like to go through the hard process of making a difficult decision. Mm. It would be the essence of free will, but it's uh, it's not that fun. People want to good reactions easily more oriented toward the outcome than the process um, and one of the key themes in my thinking is that the, the human psyche was designed by evolution but or culture culture is how our species solve the eternal problems of survival and reproduction and it works very well in population where our life expectancy because of culture and our population has gone from you the know, first few females to eight billion people in what, a couple hundred thousand years. It's, it's a very successful one. So the traits that make us human, the essence uh, of the human essence, basically there's all the biological adaptations to make culture possible. Mm. most obvious is language, Uh, being able to speak and talk and share information. No other species has any language. They do communicate a little bit, but linguists say none of that rises to language, but every human culture has language. So that's one obvious one, and free will would be one of those. Uh, Another, the ability to make decisions and carry out plans and Navigate a, a complex social environment with rules and constraints, but but opportunities. That takes a pretty advanced action control system. Like, uh, uh, should we call it free will? I think it's good enough. It's perfect term. Uh, but yes, it is. It is beyond anything else seen in nature.
0: Yeah. Roy, I know um we're our time is about up, so i, I just want to say how much I love your work. I would love to talk to you uh whenever this new book is is out in more detail about you know willpower and free will in general. I, th- I think that would be uh fascinating. Maybe to close i you know to me, I've had three or four people who have been uh deeply involved in evolutionary psychology, either as psych professors or uh people who have kind of dipped their toe in that water for intensely for a period of their career i'd love to close maybe by asking you what how that field uh we've talked about some of the more fascinating uh, aspects of it but how it's affected you or influenced you if there's anything else related to ev psych that you find you know mind-blowing or not particularly well known uh in the general culture that you think is um you know, worth articulating at, at the end here. I'd love to give you an opportunity to to speak about that.
1: Oh, well, that's a big, big question. I don't know what I can say, but uh, it's been a sweeping and fundamental change. My attitude, I, I was raised by wolves and I decided <laughs> to believe what they believed and I wanted to end up knowing the truth. And I assume I don't start out. So I've just. All my ideas are subject to revision and I want to keep revising until I get there. Um, when I first took my psychology classes as an undergraduate at Princeton, I remember the professor of personality psychology saying, well, personality is something that's learned. The idea that there are genes or biological stuff, there might be a little of that, but not not. So Don't so, pay attention personality is something that comes from socialization. And uh, over the years, the evolutionary people have convinced me that that's, well, that's, that's wrong. It's not completely wrong, but there's a big, a big hit start uh, based on the biological endowment, and one of those studies that show identical twins who were raised apart end up more similar than... Non-identical twins raised in the same household. Well, uh, it's a pretty compelling sign that, uh, that that biology and genes contribute to it. There's, of course, all the mating stuff and that in just about every society in the world. So women's native field depends on how attractive and sexy they are and it depends on how much money they have, how many resources they have, and uh, you know, the other matters a little bit too. But it's it's quite disproportionate. But most societies and men want to have more sex partners than, than women do. And these these basic things they don't explain everything. I don't call myself an evolutionary psychologist, because kills people who do define themselves that way get carried away and it explains everything, well it doesn't explain it, but it is the starting point, it explains a lot. Um, and so for me to incorporate that into my thinking through the 70s and 80s, that was a big fundamental sweeping change. Uh, so, yeah. The like psyche starts that way. Like I said, the human mind was made by nature or culture. Hmm. Uh, and so it's highly adaptive. I remember, I uh, back in the 1960s and reviewing my age and saying, oh, the translating machines are just around the corner, of the computers are going to be able to translate. Uh, uh, stuff all right took a long time I guess they're getting better now but is not perfect. The machine doesn't really understand it. And if they should be able to do that I'll I'll really be impressed when they can make a computer that can do what any human baby does, which is plop it down anywhere in the world. Yeah. And it can listen to the conversations and pick it up and learn the language from that. Then I'll be impressed. Yeah. As <laughs> to the other stuff there, but but the, the fact that the, the human baby just learns the customs and the language and everything else uh, from its environment is very costly. That's, I think, why nature turns it off. As my right children should learn foreign languages when they're uh, in elementary school and not leave it to university, mm-hmm. they pick it up so easily here in Europe they have friends who and they have a baby they start by teaching it a different language. Uh <laughs> they said, oh they'll learn the local language fast enough as soon as they go to school. Uh but uh they teach it something different and uh kind of learn it and then it it's kind of it learns so easily at that age. Uh so um again uh The brain evolved to pick up and adapt to the culture really well
0: Hmm. yeah well said roy thank you again for taking the time i know it's late where you are over in europe Uh, i really appreciate it and uh, your stuff is absolutely mind-blowing and fascinating so thanks again for doing this
1: okay thanks
0: thank you for listening to this episode of keep talking If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible.